Hey guys, welcome to the Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. In today's episode, we're interviewing and having a special guest over. This guest is currently one of my teachers in my university. This is my final year, and I decided to bring him over to the show because of his exceptional teaching skills. So why don't I just leave the floor straight away and let him do his introduction. All right. Thank you, Alfredo, for having me on the show. Um, let me just start with my name. My name is Sayyid Mohsin Amir Mohtiar, the longer name I understand. So people call me Mohsin, but for Italians, they just go with Mohsin or Mohsin, which is normally how they pronounce me. Yeah, they have difficulties <laughs> <Yeah>. pronouncing. <laughs> with an H. Um, I was born and raised in Pakistan. Um, all my life I've lived in Pakistan. Uh, I had my basic education in Pakistan. I have an MBA in Human Resource Management from IBA University, which is in Pakistan. So the moment I finished my MBA, I've kind of like started looking for opportunities and guess what? There was a lecturer position in the same university where I graduated from. Luckily in Pakistan, you can still be a university lecturer with a master's degree. I applied, I got lucky, I got into the university. So long before you know, I started teaching to the people of the same age as I was. So the moment I graduated, I was 23. Okay. And after two months, I got the job. So and I was how, was, how was the experience of like teaching people of your same, like that were your same age? Like It was, I mean, to begin with was really terrible, really, really terrible because I started teaching in the same university where I graduated from. So there were people one year junior than me who were still my friends, I mean play cards together we play soccer together we play cricket together and now I was in the classroom you know kind of like the teacher so I think that the first three four years until all those people graduate who were students with me yeah I would say after four years I kind of like get in the comfort zone but before that it was really tricky did they take you seriously your friends that were like one year they pretend to take me pretend seriously, it. at least in the class. Because, I mean, in the class, I remember the first class that I taught was about change management. Okay. And as the conscious of the nature of the course was, I was myself going through a huge change. I mean, being on one side and then all of a sudden coming on the other side of the class, I had to manage that change. So I use that particular course which I was teaching also to apply a little bit on myself on how I need to change roles from being a student to a professor. So. That's actually good. I also have the similar experience with my podcast because in some time, like in some cases, I would like make an episode the moment that I feel that I'm, I also might need that same advice. So it makes complete sense. Yeah, it's like a win-win situation. Exactly. Yeah. And you can give, like, in my opinion, you can, you can give the best advice if you're, like, in that situation. Because totally it's all good, like, theory spoken and everything. And sometimes you might get good advice, but because you're not dealing with that situation, you don't actually listen to it properly or, like, uh, keep it inside of you. You don't, like... I totally understand yeah. that. I totally understand that. So the, the moment I embarked on this journey of being, a, let's say, lecturer... Uh, for the first few years, I was teaching human resource management, and then I realized I need to update my knowledge and skills. So I went for another master's, this time to Beijing. It was uh, UIBE University in Beijing. I spent two years there, lovely city, amazing people. I love the food. Spent two years there, started learning Chinese language because the idea was how one can do business with a Chinese. So my idea was learn that, bring it back to my university and start educating students how we can do business with, with China because back then Pakistan and China were signing a, I think, $43 billion deal. Okay. China yeah. was about to invest in my country and we thought, why not make the most of this opportunity? Yeah, that's a lot of foresight to think about that in advance. Yeah, because yeah, we, we could see businesses coming in and as a business university, we thought, well, let's be proactive rather than reactive. Uh, and then with the passage of time, I, I got into entrepreneurship and I started helping businesses set up in Pakistan, help them get connected with the Chinese businesses, kind of like that thing, which created an interest in me that I should have my own businesses as well. So okay. I started a couple of small businesses, primarily in the hospitality. 
I've got a hair salon, um, I've got a coffee shop, and I've got a small recreational, let's say, summer house where people can enjoy the swimming pool and play so games and sports. Have them. I currently yeah. have all okay. three of them. My younger brother is looking after them. Uh, when I have to give my business to my younger brother, it, it kind of like became a family business then, which created an interest again in me that I need to understand how to manage a family firm. And I wanted to understand more about family businesses because now I was in one of the family business. I said, all right, let's, let's find out who's good in family firms. Long and behold, Italy was at number one in exactly. family firms. I was like, okay, let's go to Italy. Uh, that's how I ended up here in Rome and now I am a PhD student here at Lewis uh, and as a PhD student one of the requirements is that we also have to teach alongside our PhD and that's how I end up teaching you. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible. Um, I, have, uh, I saw some time ago there's a statistic about Italy which is that I'm not, I don't want to do any mistakes here but I think at least three quarters, probably more of all the companies in the country are small to medium companies and the majority are just family run. 90% of them, yeah, yeah 90% of their family run and they are really big names when it comes to family firms, starting from Ferrero, Ferrari, Ducati, yeah. all the way down to Barilla and all these different companies. Majority of them are family owned. It just makes it an interesting setting to come in, come and study here. And what is like the main difference that you see from normal let's call them like that like non-family firms and family firms like what are the main points like differences well this is something that i'm still conducting research on okay. so i'm not an expert to to comment on it but, but maybe an opinion I, I think the one of the key differences that i thought was their orientation towards stakeholders I believe family firms tend to be more inclusive, tend to be more caring when it comes to taking care of their employees, taking care of their customers or suppliers. They are ready to, to walk an extra mile and somehow give up on the financial returns because at the end of the day, they are protecting the name, which is their family name on top of the building. Uh, we, we saw this in COVID, you know, a lot of companies let people go a lot of non-family firms because the, the prime concern was to save money but we noticed that so many family firms they, they, they went above and beyond they give charity they give donations they, they didn't fire people let's say they it's tried, a, yeah like yeah. a cool environment versus like a warm environment yeah so I would say family firms tend to be more stakeholder oriented non-family firms yes they are taking a lot of initiatives on climate you know this world a better place but still money somehow becomes their first priority don't you don't you think that uh this at the same time like positive side to them don't you think that it could also backfire in case the family was like is not that um united a lot of the times a lot of the times i mean when it comes to family there are a couple of problems that we have noticed one they they tend to avoid risk so they, they don't want to grow radically. They, they want to take things really slow because it's all about continuing the business. So they try to play really safe because, I mean, if I have my business, I want my son and daughters to take care of the business. If there's no business, there's nothing to take care of. So they, they don't take risks. They don't really innovate that much. And of, of course, there would always be some sort of favoritism because you you know want to give somebody a favor so there will be people who are not let's say one of the best employees okay. in terms of performance but maybe the employees who are well connected with the you know my uncle or my aunt and because i owe my uncle a favor i have to let's say hire that person so maybe the quality tends to be relatively lower you're not, uh, let's say, running in the best interest of the firm, actually. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes, yeah, like So it, it has both positives and negatives. Okay, okay. And going back to your life story. So from Pakistan, you went to uh, Beijing. Yep. And from Beijing, you're all the way here in Italy. Yep. What are your future perspectives? Um, currently, I'm. Uh, let's say, I'm, as I mentioned, I, the moment I started 
doing my businesses, I, I realize I want to somehow connect my profession and translate it into a business opportunity. I am an assistant professor at this point in time. I teach in universities. What I want is to convert that knowledge into a more consulting domain. So let's say my future goal would be to have my own consulting firm. Okay. And I would want to go back and start from Pakistan because that's the market that I understand. That's the people that I understand. And to some extent, quite frankly, I would want to go and help my people. You know, I, I think I can have a larger impact in creating more opportunities in Pakistan rather than in China or in Italy, where there are a lot of people doing a lot of things. Yes, and I, I, I don't know if it's also like that, like uh, like this in Pakistan, but in Italy, the economy and the notions and the things that happen kind of happen at a slower pace, like happen later compared to like the more developed markets. So there's always an opportunity to just see what is happening in the States or yeah, yeah. in some big country and then catch the wave maybe six months later. And there are a lot of similarities. I was not expecting this, but there, I found a lot of similarities in Pakistan and Italy, although we are in from an economic development perspective at a completely different stage. Political instability is not a good thing, but that's something we have in common. Yes. Uh, 72 years down the road, Pakistan got independence in 47. We never had a government who have completed its tenure, probably just one. So there's always been corruption yeah. charges, the new government coming in. When I came to Italy, I realized, well, it's the same story. And amidst that chaos, businesses are flourishing. And that was interesting to see. I mean, you have this crazy political instability, but still there are businesses out there yeah. who are doing an amazing job. So I got interested in how could they possibly do it? If the Italians can do it, well, then Pakistanis can do it as well. That's great. That's great. Because there are, uh, from what I like, saw in my short lifespan, uh, there are a lot of Italians here that have this entrepreneurial mind. Although, in my opinion, it's rare here in Italy because it's a less developed country, let's say. It might be in the G7. It might be in the European Union. But it has one of the worst statistics for a lot of stuff in Italy compared to the rest of the European Union. So, my opinion, it's a bit underdeveloped. But, but mostly because... I see Italy more like uh, Greece, you know, it's like very traditional country full of like traditional values. So it tends to be like very slow in adapting and getting a hold of the new things. And I don't know if you also yeah. agree on that. To some extent, I mean, when you say it's not that developed or when you, you know, mix it with Greece, the only thing that come in my head is, is the debt that Italy has to pay. Yeah. So in terms of that perspective, I agree. I okay. mean, we, uh, we would put them in the same context because there's a lot of debt that the government have to pay. From, um, from a family value perspective, um, it really depends if you're talking about the north of Italy or the south of Italy because then things could be completely different. Yes. There's, there are different ways of doing things. Um, when you say that the country or... In general, things are not as good as the rest of the G7. I think it boils down also to the younger population. We are facing a huge problem of aging population in Italy. I think Italy is, a, is the second country after Japan who is facing the problem of aging population. We have a lot of elderly people, the younger generation, either we don't have it or the kids that we have don't want to stay in Italy because of political instability, lack of opportunities. Before Brexit, although a lot of my Italian friends would want to go and work in the UK, you know, that's where they are aiming for. Once we finish the PhD, we're going to UK. Now, of course, not that many because there are visas, you know, and, visas yeah. and documentation, but still they are looking towards Germany, they are looking towards France. They would want to somehow go out, which kind of like aggravates the, the yeah. existing problem in Italy. There's a funny, there's a funny statistic. There's an interesting statistic uh, that recently uh, happened, which where uh, the population of the Italians that are working and the populations that are retired and receiving the the government pension reached fifty percent and fifty percent. Wow, look at that! So, yeah. and plus. The, the, pension system, the, pen, the pension system here in Italy is kind of funny because it happens that a lot of people at the end of their retirement, if they were to reach retirement, they don't even know how much they're getting. So I don't know how in Pakistan works, but my, from my, in my father's country, Singapore, 
uh, things are clearer. That means you have a percentage, minimum percentage of your salary that has to be taken and put in like a fund. Mm -hmm. And if you want, you can also put more. But you will always know how much you have, and you can always take track of, of it from a website. Yeah. So it's yeah. easy. And the rules are just like straightforward, presented to you. While in Italy, it's a bit more like you don't know what is happening. You might get less, you might get more, but you don't know anything. So it's less. Uh, in Pakistan is the same like in Singapore. We we know exactly how much is in our account and how much exactly what we'll get once we retire. And if you want the funds to go up. We can always, you know, put more money in it. I think it's called a gratuity fund, which we get once we retire. Nah, I, I never knew in Italy you have no idea. Yeah, I mean, there is, we have a website, but I still see from, like, all my friends, family members, and also family friends, that they have a very, uh, let's say, non-transparent perspective on this because, Interesting. you know, they, they, they see that they have this uh, contributi, the, the basically this deduction from your, your salary but they don't know how much they're going to get because there is no transparency of the calculations of anything because oh. they can be a law from nowhere that just clicks and you might get half of what you got <laughs> yeah so oh, that's crazy that's yeah, crazy exactly and um going back to the businesses yeah how did you find uh managing the businesses is, does your brother uh still can't sorry just does your brother have difficulties in managing all these businesses or are you okay and just calm or do you still have to do something um although you're i here? mean to be honest and fair these are small businesses right we don't have a lot of employees working for us so things manage on their own most of the time i mean we have one guy responsible for each businesses for example we have a let's call him the cafe manager Oh, he's, he's basically an accountant. We just given him better titles, so just to make him happy. Uh, that guy just manages a store, maybe two servers, nothing beyond that. And the hair salon, they're like five, six employees. At the farmhouse, probably there are four, five employees. So a total of 10, 15 employees. Most of the time, things manage on their own, most of the time. But if there's a problem, you know, we just have to go and make a decision. So. It's been fairly easy to manage it. Okay. But in reality, all these three businesses were kind of like trying to help myself. You know? uh, I started a coffee shop uh, the moment we, when I came back from China. Um, coffee is not a big thing in Pakistan. We, we love tea. We are one of those tea nations. I came back. I wanted a place where I can sit and chat with my friends. Like a Starbucks. Yeah. We don't have Starbucks. There were a lot of Starbucks in Beijing. I mean, that was the place where we normally hang out with my friends. So I came to Pakistan. I couldn't find it. I said, you know what? Why don't we have our own coffee shop where I, we had an amazing place and then other people can come and we can make money. Same happened with the hair salon. You know, I wanted to make sure that I don't have to shave every morning. Oh, haircut was a problem. Oh, okay. Why don't I have my own hair salon? I get a free haircut. And then I can make a lot of money. Um, Karachi, which is the, um, the largest city in Pakistan, tend to, because the population is so condensed, we have a lot of high-rising buildings. You know, there are a lot of skyscrapers. So people normally live in apartments. Um, so they are flats. There are no... You know, you don't have a lot of recreational activities if you live in, you know, tall buildings. You can't have a swimming pool. You, you don't have a backyard where you can play, which is quite common in the small, you know, towns or small cities. So people in Karachi really had this need. And when we moved to Karachi, we had the same problem because we moved from a small town to a big city. We're like, okay, cricket is... Is really really famous in Pakistan. I don't know if you know cricket. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah. yeah. So cricket not as and not as the insect, but as the game. Yeah. It's super famous in Pakistan, and we need a lot of people to go and play with. I was like, okay, where can we go and play cricket? Because I have two brothers and two sisters, and we are a family of five, and we love playing with each other. So like, okay, how do we do it? Well, we came up with an idea of the farmhouse. We develop it primarily for ourselves, but we normally go there every fortnight. The rest of the 14 days, what do we do? I was like, how about we just you know, rent it out? 
to yeah. other families who are looking for recreational activities. That is nice. That is nice. Going back to the cricket, I heard that the cricket final between in, like the the, the, the Pakistan and India, Pakistan ah. and India is one of the most seen yeah. events worldwide. Probably we may be a, a bit at par with El Clasico, you know, Barcelona and Real Madrid, but Pakistan India cricket is probably more more seen and watched in the world because yeah. there's this you know national rivalry and then politics involved. It's crazy. There's some players I see on Instagram. They have like a hundred million follow, hundred million followers. Some cricket players, and they they're basically like the Cristiano Ronaldo's of cricket. And yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Cristiano Ronaldo never became prime minister of Portugal, but the guy who won the World Cup for Pakistan in cricket is was the prime minister uh, like a couple wow. of months ago. Imran Khan was his name. Yeah, I think the I guy was that. so famous as a cricketer, he ended up being a prime minister. Man, that's that's how famous he was. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, let's now focus on the one thing that caught my eye most which is your teaching style how did you develop such a teaching style for the ones who don't know in my opinion your teaching style is one of the best i've ever seen to get the most retention for the students that means that the student can finish the one hour one hour and a half lecture getting the most information as possible already just by sitting there and just listening and you know like then maybe revising at home comes easier and everything else i just wanted to know i was very fascinated to know if this was just natural or there was some study behind it or was it trial and error how did all this happen well first of all thank you for for saying that you like my style um it, it was let's say both the art and the science i would say it's not something natural i developed it over the period of time I remember the, the first instance that happened when I first became the lecturer. So day one, I mean, before they, they, they give me a class, they send me on a training. Uh, my university sent me for, for one month. We went to a training program where we learned how to teach case studies. We had a professor from Harvard University. We have a professor from MIT, professor from Lums, and probably a professor from Singapore, but was from LSE London. So we had all these professors, amazing guys, telling us how we should teach, how we, you know, how to run a class, how to teach a case. For one whole month, I was really excited. Now I knew all the ins and outs of how to, you know, teach a case study. So I came back, and I, and I started the class. So I gave my students um, a case to read, and after one week, I said, "All right, we guys will discuss it." So for the one whole week, I could only think about. How am I going to teach? What questions would I ask? How would I create fun? What would be the hook? Everything that I learned in the trainings. I was really ready. I came to the class and I said, all right guys, let's discuss Starbucks. And I was like, Starbucks? Uh, yeah, the case. I said, were we supposed to discuss the case today? I said, come on, we were supposed to discuss the case. Did you not see the email? Yeah, we saw it, but we thought uh, maybe it's for a different time. Now. I had a class of 30 students who did not read the case. If they haven't read it, I can't really discuss it. So the whole effort of one week just went and waned. I, quite frankly, it was like my first class. I really got angry and I got so angry that I left the class. Right in that moment, I said, okay, I'm not gonna teach this batch anymore. I went to the director and I say, I mean, I'm not teaching these kids anymore. They're not responsible kids. I'm done. Okay. I was really, really angry. So I went to my mentor, uh, who is also a professor in the same university, and I go and tell him the same, the, the whole story. And he looked at me and was like, why are you disappointed? I'm like, professor, they were supposed to read it. And he asked me, why were they supposed to read it? Isn't that what their job is? And I said, yeah, students. It's their job not to study. Oh my God. That's... And I was like, what, is, what does that mean? I mean, that just hit me really at a place where I never expected it. And it's like, there are students, it's their job not to study. You're a professor now. It's your job now to make them study. If they were so motivated, you know, so energetic to study, they don't have to come to the university, by the way. 
they can just sit back home, do it on online degree and be done with it. If their moms and dad or whosoever is financing them, if they are sending them to the classroom, that means they need you as a motivator to encourage them to read. That thing just completely changed my perspective. I changed mine just now. It's and I'm like, okay, so from that day onward, and this is back in 2009, from that day onward, I never took for granted that my students would study. Yes, there would always be brilliant students who would be proactive and ask amazing questions, but I don't enter in a class with the notion that it's their job to ask me questions, it's their job, it's their responsibility, you know, because you know, they have to learn if they don't want to learn. I had a different perspective. It's my job to create interest. You know, my job to make sure they they enjoy it. So maybe that's how things started, and that's how. That's actually a great thing because uh, on the podcast, one of the main topics is motivation and let's say being con- in control of your life. And one of the biggest changes that can happen to somebody's life and is not very common to see is to take full responsibility of what is happening around you how many times do we hear people just complain about this not being right that not being right but never just seeing inside of themselves being accountable and just like okay what should i fix about myself because everybody thinks they're perfect but there is no such thing as perfection you could just keep improving because from my perspective i just saw you as a teacher that had a wonderful teaching style i didn't know the story behind it yeah so this makes me understand that there is no, let's say, peak or you you can always grow. That's the thing. There's so always, yeah, I mean, the biggest room in the world is room for improvement. There's, exactly. there's always possibilities to improve. So, so I, I, I thought, okay, that if it is my responsibility, how do I do it? Uh, I was in the beginning really focused a lot on the content, which is quite frankly a lot of professors are. When it comes to you know delivering lectures, we're always thinking a lot about I have to teach these twenty things. On the contrary, then I decided that if I have to be a really good teacher, I have to be a really good actor, which is not a lot of professors pay attention to. You got you got to have to act. So I had a professor who taught me organization behavior. His class was the most fun. He would jump around in the class. All of a sudden, he would sit down. He would you know jump up and he would shout and if there's a picture in the book he would run around the class and showing everybody this is a picture this is a picture this is a picture and i'm like what is this is he a clown i mean come on he's a professor and quite frankly in pakistan as a professor as a student there's always a line that you never cross i think it's the same in italy as well yes you you don't really call them with their first name no you don't there's a respect i mean in pakistan we have the same thing and here this professor jumping around you know, high-fiving with the student. And I was like, okay, this guy has something. I mean, this is something something different about this guy. What is it? And then after the class, they asked me, told me the same thing. I said, listen, Mohsen, if you ever want to be a good professor, you're going to have to learn the art of acting. You're going to have to sometimes act, make those silly faces, sad, happy, angry. Because what you are saying, 20% of the time, people will pay attention but most of the time they pay attention to how you're saying it. You know, how you say it has more importance than what you say it. So if you say it, you know, like you mean it, they will buy it. That is excellent advice because there are so many cases like worldwide, you can hear it all over during your day of people, let's say even conversating, oh, I don't know what to say, or what should I do? Let me prepare myself. But the most important thing is just to be almost in that flow and just focus more on saying things in a proper way rather than thinking too much on what to say if it's great, if it's not great. Because then you start to overthink. Yeah. And then that's where the fuck up happens. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. So then you basically uh, glued together all your, um, let's say, experiences with these great teachers because I never heard such great advice. And you just started. When was like the first time you adopted this? Was it like straight it, away? No, it took me, I think, three to four years. And I, and I tried to experiment a lot of things. There were a lot of ups and downs. I had a lot of students pissed off at me. And they say, oh, Professor, the, the language they are using in the class is not professional. It's against our culture. You know, you shouldn't use those bad words. 
I should admit something here, be candid. I use a lot of bad words when I do lectures, but then I realize every time I do that, I, mean, I feel that connection with the students. And quite frankly, I was super young back then. I was like 26, 27, and I'm teaching students who are roughly of the same age. So outside the classroom setting, that's how I talk. I was like, okay, if I do the same thing in the classroom, would that work? Because, you know, when you become a professor, you, you try to be careful, you try to overthink, you're more concerned about the content, then you lose the charm. And I was like, okay, let me just be natural in class and see if that works. It works really excellently. I mean, for the first few months, students didn't realize what was happening, but eventually they thought, I mean, the guy is being natural. So I just went with the flow, and over the period of time, things just somehow fall in my favor. I noticed it with my friends. Most of them are Italians in my class. And your first lecture, everybody was like, what is happening? What, what is this? <laughs> I, was, I was already, like, captured in the first five minutes. I was like, okay, he's the shit. He's like, he knows what he's doing. He, yeah. He's like, <laughs> I straight away got captured, and I was like, I'm going to be glued, glued on to this. Well, the rest of the people, I think, took time. After your second lecture where we did the, the, the quiz, mm -hmm. like, a whole game in the class, I, I think everybody started to get used to it and like yeah. understood. So they, they started expecting it. something new and they say, okay, this is not the traditional way. This is slightly different. We're going to have to be a bit flexible. You know, flexibility is a two-way street. I mean, if I am flexible, I somehow expect you to be flexible. It's both way around. So if... I am the one adapting my style and then students want to stay with those old traditional ways. It doesn't really work, but it takes a lot of time. So, yeah, I'm happy that we are now at a stage where we are both happy the way things are going. Yeah, and I just think that when something is new, of course, you know, you, you might take some time to adapt to it here there and understand instead of maybe just seeing, oh, okay, this is it. Maybe you just need to, like, adapt. And especially in Italy, I think that because of what we said about the traditional, the traditions and everything, it takes time and they need to like see for themselves from their own perspective before Seeing seeing is something is yeah. like valid or not. Yeah, yeah I agree with 100%. that. Yeah. So let's talk about something that I like to talk about a lot in my podcast, which is failure. Yeah. Because I consider failure as not something negative because the word failure makes it think that it's like the worst thing that could happen in your life or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, but at the end, it's like the best way in which life could teach you something. And yeah. keeping that failure, let's call it like that, constantly motivates you and makes like a fire burn inside you. Yeah. So what is your perspective on that? Like failure in general during your uh, life? I have had my fair share of failures in my life, but I think one failure that taught me the biggest lesson, um, if we have time, I just want to, talk a little bit about it so this is me during my bachelor's before my master's I, I did my BBA and joining the armed forces in Pakistan is is the best thing that you can do you know, everybody who graduates would want to join the armed forces in Pakistan it's like a craze in the young generation we, we want to be part of the armed forces army air force navy it's just cool I mean yeah, it gives you a lot of power quite frankly because Pakistan half of the time have been under military dictatorship so if you are in army or military, you kind of like have really good connections. You are seen as a powerful person. So I was in bachelor's. I never wanted to join the army, but I had this huge passion for Air Force. I always wanted to be a flying officer in Air Force, the one who sits at the air traffic control tower, not okay. the one in the airplane. So I wanted to be the ATC guy you know, as a flying officer. So during my bachelor's, I prepared myself to appear in the test of the flying officer. I read everything and I was like, okay, this is how you become, uh, to become a flying officer in Pakistan, you have to go through certain stages. Stage one is the initial test. I prepared in my district, I taught the test because this is something that I wanted. So I, I, I knew that I want to be a flying officer. All of my efforts every day was to prepare myself to become a flying officer, both mentally and physically. I cleared the initial, then we went through the initial medical test, everything was perfect, everything was right. They just told me you have to do this 1.5 mile run in seven minutes. And back then I was a bit skinny, so my chest was not according to the requirement. They say, you have to pump up your chest a little bit and you have to make sure that you can run 1.5 miles in, that's it, seven minutes. 
and then they gave us three months in which we can prepare. So three months, every morning I'm waking up early, going for a run, and then a bit of exercise to just pump up my chest. Imagine three months of hard work and effort, and then I physically prepared myself. Now the second round is called the assessment center. So you go to a center for four days where you go through a lot of activities, there's group tasks, planning, so on and so forth, and then you're finally selected. So they send us a letter saying that, hey, you have to appear at this assessment center, four days, bring all your documents, blah, blah, blah. So there was a checklist. I said, okay, I was ready because I knew that I only wanted to be a flying officer, 100% dedicated. Tunnel vision. Yeah, so me and my dad, we went to the assessment center. My dad dropped me. It was in a different city. It was in Karachi back then. So he dropped me at the assessment center. My dad went back to the hotel. I went inside. I, I knew it that the moment you walk in the assessment center, they, they check you, they keep an eye on you. So it's not just during the activity, I have to be good, you know, outside. So I went to my room, there were seven other candidates in the in the room where we were living together. I was being nice, I shook hands with everybody, you know, all that standard yeah. protocol because I knew somebody is monitoring us. And then in the afternoon, they all invited us for coffee. We went to the coffee room, we had then lunch, Amazing. Then they said, all right, now we will check your documents. I said, okay, brilliant. Let's just go through the documents. So we were all queued up. We are showing our documents, showing our documents. Now, something that happened there, I couldn't believe. So the, the education system is more like British education system in Pakistan. You have matriculation, the, the, high, the secondary school, then you have college, and then you go to the university. To go to the college, you have to submit your the secondary school transcript to get admission in the college. Okay. Uh, that's the standard process. Now in the requirement of the documents, it was written that I have to have that original transcript of the secondary school to appear for this test. In reality, you submit that original transcript to get admission in the college. So theoretically, nobody had this transcript. But because it was one of the requirement, Technically, I should have gotten another transcript, you know, reissued. But I had the photocopy with me. I said, come on. I, had the photo I have the college transcript. I have a university transcript. That means I went through the secondary school, right? It's just stupid requirements. So I just, you know, kind of like ignore it. Now, it was my turn. And the, and the, the guy from the Air Force started, you know, checklisting. All right. Bachelor's transcript. Yes. College transcript. Yes secondary school transcript. He it, it, it took it up and said, hey, this is a photocopy. It says you have to have an original transcript. I said, come on, stop kidding me, man. You, you know that I went to college and I, I must have gone to high school and secondary school. This is just, you know, he say, the requirement is you have to have an original transcript. Do you have it or not? And that is the moment I realized he's, he's thinking about something. You know, he was maybe thinking about rejecting me because I could see in his eyes the way he was asking the question, point blank, do you have it or not? It was yes and no yeah. answer. And I knew it. If I say no, I'm done. Because I don't know, maybe he wanted to teach me a lesson or maybe it was about the rules. You have it or not? I said, come on, bro, nobody have it. I'm, saying, I'm not talking about everybody else. I'm talking about you. Do you have it or you don't have it? We had this kind of conversation, maybe 15, 20 seconds. He said, yes or no? I said, okay, I don't have it. He took a stamp, which has big red rejected written on it. He just, bang, reject. The moment he stamped, I couldn't stop crying, man. Oh I mean, it's something just, I just started to cry. I mean, just unstoppable crying, crying. There's no voice, but the tears are shutting down. Then I tried different ways to, you know, come around it. I tried to play the racist card. I said, oh, you guys are being racist because the guy was from a different province. I was from a different province. Okay. And I said, okay, you're being racist. And I want to speak to the commanding officer. Where's the commanding officer? So they took me to the commanding officer. I said, and come on. First, I tried to be nice. And come on, it's an honest mistake. I shouldn't be disqualified. If you want, I can ask somebody to get it for me within 24 hours. I mean, it exists. You know it exists. Commanding officer were like, I again did the, you know, the racist thing. Now you're being racist. And long before I know, two people picked me from the arms, 
started dragging me outside the office, oh kicked me out of the assessment center, and after five minutes, my luggage just came outside. I sat there three hours because I didn't have the courage to call my dad and ask him to come pick me up. Oh my God. That's... Because I couldn't stop crying. I, I take out my phone and I was, ah, I was like crying. I went to the hotel, a restaurant nearby. I said, okay, if I can drink some water, have a cup of tea, maybe I would have courage. I'm, I'm crying, constantly crying. People at the restaurant coming to me. Hey, is everything okay? Do you need something? Do you want us to call the police? Everything okay? I said, no, no police. They just kicked me out. No police. Three months, three hours later, I somehow managed to call my dad. Hey, dad, they just kicked me out of the assessment. I said, could you please come and pick me up? That's it. That's the conversation I had. Dad, come and pick me up. They asked me what happened. I said, don't ask me what happened. I'll, I'll explain everything, you know, just give me some time. We went back home, we went to my hometown. I think for three months, I kind of like locked myself in the room. Oh I do not want to come out. I don't want to play with my friends because I told everybody I'll be the flying officer. Okay, yeah, that's probably what I mean. Everybody knew that I, and everybody knew that I, I was the top candidate in the district. So, you know, I was expecting it to happen. And then I was just, and this stupid mistake, man. Which, in my opinion, was not even a mistake. It's, it's just like... I mean, yeah, I know I ignored it. It was clearly written that I have to have an original document. The photocopy wouldn't work. I thought, you know, come on. It's, I just couldn't forgive myself for making this such a stupid mistake. I mean, it was the failure that I could not deal with. Then one day, something extraordinary happened. My, my mom came to my room and she said something and then she left. Okay. She, she says those precise words and I remember it till the date. He said, son, listen, everything's happened for a good reason. You just gonna have to believe in yourself. And she left. I'm like, what was that mom? Maybe it was something she Googled on how <laughs> to convince other people. What was that? I'm a strong believer, I'm a Muslim. So we have this belief that there are supernatural power that works, you know, either with you or against you. Then I start contemplating on it. Everything happened for a good reason. Okay. All I have to do is start believing in myself. So kind of like, you know, the more I contemplated, the more self-confident I became. And I, then I start exploring what I can do. The option for doing an MBA popped up. And then I became a lecturer, and then I started traveling the world. And I think four or five years down the road when I was a lecturer, I mean, in my university, I was traveling four times a year to a different country. Sometime I'm in Singapore, sometime I'm in Seoul, sometime I'm in Amsterdam, sometime I'm in New York. I'm not sure as a flying officer, I would have had the opportunity to travel that much. You might have been just stuck in that Just place. stuck in yeah. that air traffic control tower, yeah. maximum. Maybe one other country for training and stuff. And then I realized I was good at communication. I was good at people's management. All this time, being a flying officer was the worst choice that I could have made. Maybe that guy had... <laughs> actually was yeah. helped you stamping that so that failure that i thought was the biggest failure in my life was the biggest amazing thing that could happen to me man that stamp was something that now i'm in a position to teach you know tell other people my stories tell people don't give up tell people to have believe in yourself if i was an air traffic control guy I never had this opportunity. I never would be in Italy, I assume. I never would have gone to China. Uh, maybe as a flying officer, but... Yeah, it wouldn't be the same thing. Yeah. I've been to 25 plus countries and all because of... I'm a professor, I do research, so I do go on conferences, I make a lot of friends. Yeah, I mean, that, that failure and the thing that my mom told me, I mean, that is something that I still hold dear to, to my heart. And every day just try to be the better version of myself that's what I do here in Italy we have a, a say we have the say is like this, these are the exact words is non tutto il male viene per nuocere it means like not all the bad comes to harm you which yeah. is exactly yeah which is more or less the same yeah. thing sometimes it's just a lesson yeah, yeah exactly 
it was a lesson because I had the tunnel view. I mean, I just wanted that one thing. Yeah, when you have that, nothing can stop you because tunnel exactly means you're not seeing right, left, just going straight yeah, but at it. Isn't it what the, the, the motivational speakers used to tell back then, you know? Yeah. Set a goal and put all your energy in achieving that goal and the world would come around and help you if you have the target. I was following that blindly. And I couldn't expect things other way. Ah. Yeah. yeah, at the same time, it can also backfire, of course, because you might not see the other opportunities. Yeah. So what I think that I saw from a, a quote from Will Smith, mm-hmm. and other people also say it, is that when you set yourself a goal, this is just uh, like a summary, when you set yourself a goal, you should divide into very small steps. Yeah. Because if you just focus on the goal, you're not going to see the rest of the journey. Yeah. So and it's the journey that matters. Exactly. It's not the goal. Yeah. Because maybe I go to step one, step two, and I start maybe fixing my goal or seeing how hard or easier it is to reach it. And that's also one of the big reasons why people just get overwhelmed and like not achieve anything. Yeah. They just feel scared, which is normal. And they don't see straight, you know. It's, uh, they don't see the steps and they just see this huge mountain to, to climb and they don't see the the steps they need to take. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. So before wrapping up, because it's been a great episode, great value, great advice, what would be some advice that you would give to people that want to start a career in teaching or in the subjects that you're teaching? Well, I primarily teach corporate strategy and management and human resource management. So I think first piece of advice will be, I'm not a native English speaker. But you, you speak perfectly. I was born and raised in Pakistan. English is not our first language, although it is our official language. But by this time, you might have noticed that I don't speak like, uh, let's say, an average Pakistani guy. But then, the moment I speak like this, it just kind of like sends a, puts an impression on people. Now, in Pakistan, quite frankly, that is why I started faking it for a very long time. I faked this accent for a very long time, and now it just come natural. Okay, you used to fake This it. is not my nat- natural accent. I mean, okay. if I talk to a Pakistani guy, I might speak in a different version. That will so be, like low, uh, yeah, that would be like a toned down version of English. But since I've been faking it quite a lot, and the reason why I do it because people think I don't know this is definitely wrong, but people think I'm intelligent. Okay. Because I've got a nice accent and. They think, okay, this guy must, whatever he's saying should be good, should be smart. So what I'm trying to say here, we all have biases. You're going to have to find a way to kind of like use those biases towards your advantage. I'm not saying you need to exploit people. Sometimes you've got to be selfish. You're going to have to put your needs first. I'm not saying that yeah, you have to, you know... Be selfish, no. Be selfish yeah. in a good way, let's put it that way. It's just like, you know, in an airplane, they always make the announcement, to mm-hmm. help others, you have to put on your mask first and then help. You should be in, in good help. So my first piece of advice would be to take care of yourself. Try to, try to take care of yourself mentally, psychologically, physically. That is the first thing I would recommend. Second, as I was mentioning earlier... Focus on your communication skills. Get yeah, that can go a long way. You know, when it comes to negotiating a deal or getting a job, uh, talking to your employees, if you have good communication skills, I mean that would work in, in so many miraculous way you cannot imagine. That would be my second advice. My third advice would be to focus. Let's say, let me put it in nicely to embrace problem solving. Okay. Let's not get panicked with whenever we see problems. I have this motto in life where I say, I I have to stay positive no matter what. And the the easiest way of staying positive is focusing on solutions rather than dwelling on the problems. So every time you see a problem in your life, try to take the problem as an opportunity to come up with a solution. Don't just dwell on the problem. And that is what happened, you know? I, I had a problem. I didn't have a place where I can go for coffee. Bingo, coffee shop popped up. I try to, you know, cr- take those problems and convert them into opportunity, which is what I would also recommend. Yeah, I think when, when there's problems in general, you get 
people tend to get lost when you are in the problem. Yeah. You start to find solutions when you see it from like an external perspective. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that helped me for this was meditating. I don't know if you ever tried. I tried quite a lot. Um, I'm a religious guy, as I said. Um, we as Muslim have to pray five times a day, which is kind of like a meditation. Okay. I don't really pray five times. I'm not one of those good guys. At least a couple of times. Um, yeah, that helps a lot, meditating in, in whatever version you can. It does have running. My best way of meditating is cooking. I don't know if people... Yeah, do they that. do that. It's one of the... Every time I have a problem, I cook. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a good chef, I would say, especially when it comes to Pakistani cuisine. And I was lucky enough to marry a girl who is also a good chef. So every time we have a problem at home, I said, baby, let's go and cook. And we cook this amazing nihari or biryani, which are, which are the famous Pakistani cuisine, and then we eat it. Is that like your best dish? Biryani is the best dish, man. I mean, if you have a listener here who is from Pakistan or India, the moment I use the word biryani, they will have this mouth water, yeah. you know, filled up. Ah, oh, biryani. Yeah, it's like pizza for Italians. I have my father. He just loves it. Uh, because in Singapore, it's full. So yeah. it's one of his favorites. There's little India in Singapore. Yeah, there is. It's the best biryani. I've been there a couple of times, man. Yeah, they have the awesome, best biryani. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love you. The, the Prada bread with curry. Yeah. You, just, you just dip it in it. I don't know if it's done in uh, in in india or in pakistan yeah it's the same yeah parata yeah. with, with chicken curry yeah it's, 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 it's more or awesome. less the same cuisine yeah, yeah. it is awesome yeah so i thank you very much for today oh, for the pleasure. excellent advice and i really hope that you could pursue your goals in the future and maybe come over and even tell us more amazing stories of definitely, other successes definitely. i would love to do it one more time once i finish everything in italy you know before yeah, sure, wrapping before, it all yeah. up it would be awesome, yes. We'll, we'll talk more. And I definitely think that this is just amazing value. I, I just uh, invited you over because you caught my attention for the amazing, um, how do you say, lecture style. Mm -hmm. And I was also surprised and I'm really thankful for all this amazing value for today. Pleasure so, to all, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, guys, from Mosin and Alfred, this is all. And I'll be seeing you in the next episode of the Alfred's House podcast.